the hospitals and want to get deals done with these sports teams because they got the right audience and they have that what you call that transfer of trust right which like okay i trust the sports team sports team trusts the hospital i trust the hospital pretty cool Hey, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast, where my partner, Joe Favorito, and I talk about the business of sports. Joseph, another show as we approach the end of 2020. What, what say you? Where's the end? <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I, got, I think um, it's funny. I got an email this morning from someone saying, um, you know, we're entering this normal quiet period. I'm like, what quiet period? <laughs> We've been quiet for how long? What do you think they meant by that? This normal um, quiet period? I think financial investing, like I, I would imagine because the markets will physically close at the end of the year for a little while, that that's what they meant. But I don't, you know, what, what exactly are you doing? You're going to parties? I mean, come on. Well, that's true. It's, it's obviously uh, a strange end to a very um, yeah. difficult year, uh, <clears throat> which most of us will be happy to see uh, finish in a Hopefully. few weeks. Um, and it's interesting, Joe, this year, there's been so much focus, obviously, on this unprecedented public health crisis, but we really haven't talked about what's going on in that world vis-a-vis sports. And we're going to get into that today um, with someone who knows more about this topic than I think anybody I or we have met in the business. Um, and he's a guest, and I think it's okay to say this who may be the most prepared guest we've ever encountered. Yes. <laughs> Which since I know him, doesn't surprise me. He's a very successful executive. Um, so it's interesting to me that when you consider our guest's background, he may have one of the most interesting career journeys of anybody, Joe, you and I have had on yep. the show. Yep. Starting his career in retail at ANS, which is which is a good Abraham test for your stress. age. <laughs> Abraham and stress. I was gonna see who knew what that actually stood for. Um, continuing with the National Football League and since the NFL, he's worked for Clear Channel, I believe, excuse me, Live Nation. Uh, he's worked for the City of New York Marketing and he's an entrepreneur who started his own business and it may be the top agency in the country right now for what has become a very big topic in our business, which is the intersection of health care and sports. And, and, and by the way, it's yeah. not Dr. Fauci. So. <laughs> no, it's, we tried to get him, but we had to settle for the next best option, who is Jeff Safka uh, of the, uh, the principal and founder of Bendigo, uh, an agency that is focusing on sports partnerships in this world of healthcare. Uh, Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's really good to have you. Um, and thank you for all the pre-show prep that you shared with us. We easily could spend several hours talking to you. We're going to try to do all this in maybe an hour or so. But where do we begin, Joe, with Jeff Safka? There's so much to talk about. I guess well, I'll mention, go ahead. The, the one thing I want to say is instead of we're going to end it in a different way, because I think we should end with a music trivia question, Tom, versus. Oh, yeah, we got to talk a little bit of music because Jeff's, um, Jeff's side hustle is as a guitar player in a band in New Jersey that uh, has had a, a fair amount of success and has raised a lot of money. So good for Jeff for doing that. But he and I always bonded over music. Uh, I actually uh, had the privilege of working with Jeff back at the National Football League a long time ago when it was kind of murderer's row, the sports business. It was really interesting. Jeff, um, 
we're dating ourselves to talk about how long ago that was, but it really was a time. But how the heck did you make it to the, to the NFL after working at ANS? I mean, tell us like this story because it's kind of crazy. Oh yeah, that's an easy one. Lord and Taylor was um, was acquired uh, as part of another group, and it just became kind of miserable being in retail. And I decided I wanted to be in sports marketing, and I actually. Uh, found the uh, NYU school, news, uh, school of Continuing Education and went down there and signed up for the sports marketing classes. Alan Taylor was actually the, uh, my professor, uh, another legend in the business. Joe's given the thumbs up. And uh, while I was there, you know, I had, uh, uh, I had the opportunity to have Tony Dale, who was another uh, one of the folks on Murderer's Row in our group in, uh, in publishing and collectibles and all the rest. And Tony spoke about like the power and glory of the NFL. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm buying sports products and sports merchandise and licensed product. How could I not translate this into, uh, you know, into some kind of job at, uh, at one of the leagues? So I sent resumes to all the leagues and Frank Vuna was the first guy to say, hey, uh, come on board. And I got uh, sent on the road to help set up NFL team shops around the country and deal with all the buyers. It was like the greatest day of my life getting that gig. Let me quickly say I'm embarrassed about my reference to ANS <laughs> instead ah, no of Warden Taylor. I'm sorry about that, Jeff. Um, my You're only bad. ten blocks away. So you got so you got in there, and what was that business like at the time? Because Frank was pretty new when you got in, and the whole notion of sports marketing and sports licenses was really just starting to get going in earnest. Correct? Back oh, yeah. around that I time. Yeah. I think when I got there, you know, Frank said, hey, I, I just talked to, you know, our the owners and everyone else, and they think that we've capped out at, like, I forget the number, $25 million in licensing royalty, and, you know, thanks, pat on the back, you guys have done great, but, you know, I don't think we could really push this any farther, and Frank's like, oh my God, we haven't even started yet, and that guy's a pretty visionary guy, as many of you in the uh, audience probably know, and Frank took that thing to heights unknown and created things like uh, NFL Proline, just even the first deals with putting, uh, you know, Joe Gibbs and Mike Dicka in sweaters that had the team logo on it. That was, that was big marketing back then. And then signing Payne Stewart to wear the stuff on the tour. And then uh, uh, creating the quarterback club and bringing the players into the business and taking the helmets off the players. I mean, you know, you got to give the guy credit. He's definitely a hall of famer in a, in a lot of different ways and definitely changed uh, a lot of that business and set it on a course for the next 25 years. 100%, Jeff. I, I got to ask you, um, as someone who got to work with Frank as well, but not quite as closely as you did, what did you learn from him? What is your, what is your biggest memory in terms of the, the education you got from Frank Luno? Hey, look, he was just never satisfied with where things were. I, I, a real good example might be, uh, you know, even like trading cards, right? And I know that Frank was, you know, part of a number of people working on the trading card business, but you know, the idea then with, you know, Lud Denny and some of these guys that, you know, well, football should never have trading cards because that's a baseball business and there's no, no one's ever going to do football cards. And they were like, well, let's rethink it. And they took five steps back to take 10 steps forward and created a really like robust and incredible football business. They used to, I'll tell you, we had a meeting, Frank and I, we went down to, I won't tell you the name of the company, but an O-line uniform manufacturer and you know, we said, hey, listen, the world's changing and we'd like you to put your logo on the sleeve of the jerseys and then give the jerseys to the teams for free. And they're like, Frank, we sell the jerseys to the teams. Goes, yeah, but there's only like, you know, you're only selling it to like five teams. He goes, well, but Frank, if we don't sell them to the teams, who do we sell them to? And Frank goes, 
to the fans. I was like, but, but Frank, we sell the jerseys to the teams. We don't sell them to the fans. He's like, yeah, that's the opportunity. Next thing you know, Starter has jerseys on, you know, teams X, Y, and Z and Logo Athletic and all the rest. And, you know, think about that. There were people who literally were like, well, what, who wants to buy an authentic NFL jersey? I know Frank just had a, a magical kind of a divining rod for finding things that were hidden there, but no one really knew were there until it got brought to the market in a cool way. And that, and that also coincided with the beginning of a serious catalog business, remember? With our, uh, with our Columbia colleague, Ray Katz, um, starting up the print, what used to be the, the old fashioned print catalog that became very big, correct? Around that time, because of what you guys were doing in licensing? Well, yeah, imagine today, if there was no such thing as fanatics, how would you be a Broncos fan in, you know, in Alabama and get a John Elway jersey? That was the only way to do it. And Norm Charney was the guy who created the first uh, NFL uh, catalog house, really. And, you know, and then like everything else, then the retailers got into it. And then the retailers, you know, they leveraged their own inventory. Uh, so it's, it's really just a matter. And I remember, too, people saying, oh, well, the Internet's never really going to change this business. We're like, oh, boy. <laughs> here it comes <laughs> yeah and so Jeff when you um you you were involved in some of that digital transformation in the mid 90s talk about that a little bit like your memories of how you started to modernize the business beyond doing new kinds of deals and business extensions sure I think you know Tom you and I were on the first NFL internet committee in probably like 1993, I think my, my major qualification was having an AOL account at the time, which was, uh, you, know, uh, you know, and understanding what Netscape was, which was like super intense. But, um, you know, it, it sort of, trans it moved very quickly with companies like Genesis Direct who started to realize they could go and put goods online and start to go. And then, you know, it was from there, it was just, nobody realized that on-demand content would just be you know, would change the entire planet and who could see, you know, Twitter and everything else coming. And, and you, were, you were working a fair amount with the team, started to build relationships with the teams at that point. I guess little did you know that you'd be circling back to do business with teams 25 years later, um, correct? I mean, you, yeah. you, I can't remember how much you interacted with the teams back then, but now as you build Bendigo and do these deals, uh, redefining kind of healthcare partnerships for a lot of sports franchises. Yeah. Um, I suppose your, your so-called institutional knowledge probably was very important to you. Well, it's funny, I, you know, just recently was, you know, out in Seattle and have been working with the Seahawks and our, our clients, uh, CHI Franciscan and Virginia Mason. And, uh, you know, Gary Wright was like in the process of sort of retiring and all that. And he was there when, when I was working with them in Nordstrom's to do the, you know, the, the, what, what was the mascot club or whatever, and trying to create right. team shops at Nordstrom. So yeah, really cool. I mean, the, just the, the continuity is great. There's really great people in this industry. And I'm, I'm really glad that I did make that leap into sports when I did, because, you know, I still do find it to be, you know, it's kind of like sports. People like to work hard and they like to compete hard, but they like to compete fair and in the rules. That's what I love about this business. So Let's leap, take another leap now, as we move along the, uh, the Jeff Safka career path to the city of New York and touch on the cast of characters there and what it was like to 
market the city of New York and I guess touch a little bit on the Snapple deal, which most people probably don't know about, but uh, is uh, an interesting kind of twist and turn, especially given the politics of where we are today. Yeah, and related, Joe, just an add-on, Jeff, is that it seems to me, thinking about your background, that's where you're that's where you first started getting into this issue of wellness and healthcare and things like that in a more serious concentrated way that led to what uh, I, I assume to what you've been working on these last so many years. Yeah, um, it was, so I was at Live Nation. I was kind of head of a group called the Synergy Group, which was trying to bring together all of the radio stations and the, uh, the amphitheaters and the touring businesses and trying to do this sort of quote unquote synergy at the time. And, um, I got a phone call from Joe Perello, actually, who had just been named the chief marketing officer, the first ever chief marketing officer of the city of New York. And uh, the city was preparing to put in its bid for the 2012 Olympics. This is, tw this is 2011, 12, uh, in that neck of the woods. And it was right after 9-11. And I gotta tell you, man, after 9-11, and I was at Clear Channel when it happened, uh, it, you, the city of New York just took on a different posture, right? It was always the city that like you had to fight it to survive. And after 9-11, man, you know, in not a lot of ways, it's probably the same now a lot with COVID, you know, the city needs our help to be, to thrive and be helpful and, and to, to help it. So, you know, when I got the phone call, I'd always thought that I'd have a sort of a purpose-driven part of my career. I always thought maybe after I retired, I could join boards or I could, you know, join nonprofits or whatever. I always wanted to try to give back in some way. And, and this was like an opportunity. I was like, oh my God, I could actually help the New York, the city of New York come back from 9-11 in some way, shape or form and play some small role. Uh, and, you know, the Olympic dream was really pretty incredible. Dan Doktoroff was really the architect of the dream. He had been named a deputy uh, mayor by Mayor Bloomberg to help sort of front the, the pitch for the bid for 2012. And his vision was really incredible. I mean, you know, if I got to kind of distill it down to one you know, small thing, you know, he said, hey, Jeff, you look at the East River and the East River is something that sort of divides Manhattan from Queens and Brooklyn, right? He goes, in every other great city in the world, the, you know, the Thames, the Seine, they, they unite the city, these rivers. You know, how do we relook at Manhattan and the boroughs and think about them as one big great thing as opposed to five separate things? And that was kind of the Olympic dream was to redevelop that whole coastline on the East River and make it part of you know, one city. So really cool stuff. So I kind of bought into that vision. And what they needed was somebody who had had some properties experience because they had to deliver a clean Olympics to the IOC. So the bid had to do, get its act together with regard to intellectual property, media, all the ambush stuff, right? And the city had never done licensing or uh, sponsorships or anything like that. So. We got to work with uh, Michael Cardozo, who was uh, David Stern's um, lawyer, you know, for, for many years uh, at the NBA, and who was the general counsel of the city with an army of 500 something lawyers. And we got to work with them to try to establish how the city could think like NFL properties does in a way, and let the intellectual property of the city become valuable and controllable. So it was wild. And the whole Snapple deal was interesting because, you know, the and it's a long story that I won't get into here, um, but the idea was that the city knew how to do a couple things. It knew how to buy pencils, right? You have to do a bid. It knew how to do a franchise, right? Like, so who takes over the bus stop shelters? It knew how to do a, a concession, right? Who gets to manage the hot dog carts or who gets to manage Woolman Rink ice skating rink in the city? 
but it never knew how to lend its, its goodwill through intellectual property and a brand. It's like the city knew how to manage like real estate if it was sitting in Red Hook, Brooklyn, but it never knew how to manage the real estate, like the six inches between your ears. That was the, the brand of New York. So we got to do a brand for the city of New York, one of the greatest projects I ever got to do. Uh, and we did sponsorships and licensing programs. We created uh, New York City licensing uh, to manage that program. It was really a pretty cool time. And I do feel at the end of the day, we were able to, to sort of, you know, affect billions of dollars worth of value to the city just by being smart about how it, it protects and markets its intellectual actual property. And I think that the key point of this it all did come down to that Snapple agreement. So the mayor, Mayor Bloomberg, was extremely passionate and still is to this day about sugar and, uh, and trans fat and trying to find ways to create a healthier population. And I was like pretty taken back by his absolute purpose to get this done because he felt that at the end of the day, if people are overweight, if they're obese, if they have chronic heart disease, it's gonna drive up costs, it's gonna create misery, it's gonna shorten lifespans, it's gonna reduce productivity. Everything that you want a healthy and vibrant you know, population and economy to do. So he went on a war to try to take the sugar out of every place and we kind of got involved in in an ongoing RFP that had been going on for quite some time for beverages and long story short, put together uh, with the Department of Education and actually Octagon at the time, a, uh, a citywide uh, agreement for all the vending machines that took all the sugar, added sugar water, soda, et cetera, out of all the vending machines. And it was all part of, of again, the mayor's very, he's a very purposeful guy and really inspired me to think differently about what, what I do every day. And, uh, I, I really, I got to give, you know, Mayor Bloomberg a lot of credit for sort of setting me on a path towards this sort of purpose-driven company in a lot of ways. He got a lot of pushback on that, obviously. Uh, it was controversial and, and maybe still is in certain ways. Um, well, sure. Nobody wants to be told what to do. And, you know, right. I'm if I'm a red-blooded American, I got every right to smoke a cigarette and drink a Coke. But like everything else, you know, I think his, he didn't want to take it away. He just wanted to shine a spotlight on everything in moderation and, and make people think twice because it would help save lives and make their lives better at the end of the day. But yeah, it's, just, it's the nanny state argument, right? Like, you know, it's, it's yeah. the state, should they tell you what to do or should they let you have ultimate and complete freedom? And we're seeing that now with masking and everything else, that debate will never go away. And Jeff, did that experience uh, plant the seeds for you for starting Bendigo? Like what, what was the, the conception conceptual premise of Bendigo when you were ready to go off on your own? Yeah, um, you know, a little bit. Bendigo, uh, I lived in Australia for a while, and I visited this great city called Bendigo. It's, uh, it's their sort of San Francisco in Australia. It's where they uh, hit, where they uh, found gold and discovered gold back in the 1800s, and you know, the, the allegory is pretty cool. You know, everybody flocked to Bendigo after they made their first gold strike and bought up land right? Sort of like the acquisitions that we see when there's a new business. But it turned out that the company Bendigo Mining Company dug like, you know, deeper than the Empire State Building is tall, like over, you know, 5,000 feet down or whatever it was, I guess that's a mile. But they dug incredibly deep and found out that all the real value, the hidden gold was actually under the original strike site. So I thought it was an apt metaphor for companies who help you find hidden value in your own company, as opposed to going out and buying other companies to try to buy growth. We help you build organic growth. And that's kind of 
it's kind of how it, it went down. And so you decided to do that. You got a great name, great premise. What did you do first? Like, how did you build the business and how did you find your way into the healthcare market so uh, squarely as you are now? Well, very quickly ended up in Beijing for the Olympics uh, because all my contacts in Australia were already up in Beijing working on the Olympics. I had already been working on the Olympics with the city of New York. It was a natural. Uh, got a call from Peter Hughes who sat right down the, the hallway from us and he asked me to help bring the World Poker Tour to China, which we did. Don't ask me how, long story, but ended up in China actually building, creating, and setting up the World Poker Tour and doing an 11 city tour and a deal with the Chinese uh, Sports Commission. Uh, and it, just an incredible experience. And, you know, after the Olympics, I, I came back and uh, Frank Vuno again kind of entered into my life and said, Hey, I, I, gotta, I gotta talk to you. And it's like, What's going on? He said, Listen, I need your help. I want you to help us to rebrand a healthcare system. I'm like, Don't do healthcare. He goes, well, he goes, this healthcare system is, is Hackensack University Medical Center. It's really important to me because his family had, he was born there and his parents had died there and he had a lot of emotional attachment to the place, which you can understand. And he was the board member uh, overseeing marketing. They had kind of cleared out their marketing team with, with a new group of, uh, of executives who came in and they wanted to rethink the entire thing. So anyway, Frank, you know, said to me, hey, he goes, remember how cool it was at the NFL? You got to go to the Super Bowl. I'm like, yeah. He goes, remember how cool it was at Live Nation? You got to go see the who, you know, like, you know, in the third row. I'm like, yeah. He goes, now you're really just going to want to be able to refer your family and friends to great, like, you know, great urologists and cancer. <laughs> and at the time, my mom was actually, you know, dying of cancer. And I, like, sort of kismet in a lot of ways. My, you know, the doctor uh, who is the number one lymphoma guy in the, in the world, happened to be at Hackensack and he actually gave us three years with my mom that I never thought we had. So sort of like these weird, you know, purpose-driven things like, right, you, you never know. And so I really gave my heart and soul to, to that place Hackensack to try to, to rebrand them and essentially shut down my company and moved in there for about uh, three years to, to rebrand it and repackage it and, and, you know, very successful. And I'm really proud of the, the project we did there. But one of the things that we, I learned when I got there is they had the Giants, they had the Red Bulls, we had the PGA. And I was like, oh my God, the, the sports marketing in these healthcare systems is a wreck because <laughs> I'm looking around the country. Everyone's got an official healthcare provider or whatever. But um, I started like looking into the way the agreements are done. And you know, to me, with all due respect, the healthcare professionals in marketing are awesome, but they really aren't in a great position to be able to have the sort of institutional knowledge to negotiate the best agreements for healthcare systems with, with teams. And so, you know, quickly we decided to just, you know, go on a mission to try to change the dynamic uh, between the, the teams and the, the healthcare systems. Whereas it had always been sort of, and it came around the American you know, Affordable Care Act, right? So if you remember the Affordable Care Act of the Obama administration, it sort of put the hospitals in a tough spot because they were sort of left out of the party when you had the insurers and the physicians and the, the state and Medicare all pretty much saying we can reduce these healthcare costs and they thought they could squeeze the balloon, right? And that the hospitals would, would, would you know, kind of follow suit. The hospitals got pretty smart. They decided to go on an acquisition spree to get big and powerful. And, you know, Hackensack, when I got there was one hospital, it's 17 hospitals now. Wow. So, 
right? And because they needed to leverage their buying power and their clout to be able to negotiate against, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, the insurance companies and all the rest. So that was, that all of a sudden made branding and hospitals really critical because these CEOs were like, I got to go make all these acquisitions. I got to build my brand because your brand has a value, right? What's Coca-Cola's brand value? $200 billion, right? Just for the if you, you know, if you go to the inner brand survey, I don't even remember what the number is these days, but if you took the word Coca-Cola away from the Coca-Cola company, it would lose like half its market cap because its value isn't in its, you know, just in its trucks and its, uh, and its you know, facilities. It's in, the, it's in the name and the goodwill that's built in there and the formula and everything else. It's, it's like all intellectual property, right? Same thing we were talking about with the city in New York. So with hospitals, you know, they realized they needed to build their brands quickly. And what better way to do that than with sports to get high profile, high trust, high connection, and to what you'd call high commercially insured patient profiles, right? Giant fans are, I think, three times more likely to make uh, over a quarter million dollars than non-giant fans. So you're talking to people who actually can afford the insurance that can get you into these places because these health hospitals and healthcare systems you know, they're also nonprofits. So they spend hundreds of millions of dollars in free healthcare to be able to take care of people who can't afford it. And so they need people who can't afford it to be able to pay the bills. So that was sort of this, uh, you know, coalescence and catalyst around sports marketing exploding. And right now, I mean, there's probably $250 million or so being spent by hospitals to be the official XYZ of the various sports teams around the country. And what so, percent, well, could, just quick, quickly, Judge, just as a, a follow-up, um, Jeff, what percentage of the major pro sports teams in the United States have healthcare deals? Is it the vast majority or all of them? I don't know anyone who doesn't. Okay, that's what I thought, yeah. It's a good number. You have to, yeah. pretty much. Well, look, it's a weird deal, right? Because in some leagues, you know, they're integrated and in some they have to be separate, right? The, the collective bargaining agreements ensure that a team can't go and just take the most money from the worst healthcare system because right. that would be incongruent with their, you know, goal to make sure the players are healthy. So, you know, there's sort of a combination of marketing and, and uh, clinical care go hand in hand. And it was interesting too, because I, we did focus groups on this back, uh, you know, about eight years ago. And, you know, you, you got the two-way mirror in the focus groups. We were talking about uh, one of our hospital systems and, you know, the, the moderator said, hey, let me ask you all a question. Does anybody know if, uh, you know, who the official healthcare provider is for this team? And so it's like, oh, I know it's this hospital. He goes, oh, how do you know that? Oh, because I'm a season ticket holder. I see it in the signs. I hear it on the radio. Oh, that's really interesting. Why do you think that happens? He goes, oh, well, they must have the best doctors. And then someone else chimes in, that's bullcrap. They probably spent a million dollars or something to be able to buy those rights, right? And I'm watching the moderator like, oh, this is interesting, right? And so the moderator asked an interesting question. He goes, oh, do you think that they have to then buy these rights? And then someone else said, hey, look, at the end of the day, I don't care how much it costs, right? I'd want the best hospital who's got the most money anyway, because they're going to have the best doctors and the best equipment. And I wouldn't take, you know, a million dollars, a hundred million dollars from that crappy hospital down the road to, right? So the perception is that if you are with the best hospitals, your, the health of your team is going to be in the best place. And Interestingly enough, we even teased that out more in some, uh, in some research with MarketCast. So if you know 
that your team is affiliated with a particular healthcare system, you're somewhere around 65% more likely to trust and consider that healthcare system because of that fact. So you can imagine why then the hospitals want to get deals done with these sports teams because they got the right audience and they have that, what you call that transfer of trust, right? Which like, okay, I trust the sports team, sports team trusts the hospital, I trust the hospital. Pretty cool. Okay, a uh, couple things. One is, um, give us a time frame for when you when Frank came to you and started that. So was that 10 years ago, 12 years ago, nine years ago? The second thing on the other side of that, in terms of the trusted provider, obviously some teams do flip their, their partnerships from time to time. But what happens when you go into these discussions with hospital systems, like, you know, and you could touch on maybe one or two of the ones that you're working on now, um, what happens when you have a team like the Mets who are overrun with injuries and is there ever a backlash to saying those doctors must suck because our team is always hurt? I haven't had that happen in any of the instances I've been in. Uh, so uh, I can't say that that's the case. Um, Mets, I don't know. I do know who their official medical services provider is. And if they have had a rash of injuries and I don't follow them that well, I will not then therefore declare that right there. But look, there's there's more than it's, there's a team athletic trainer and team medical staff is on the front lines. The hospital is the place where you get your procedures done. So you have to go to the safest hospital and the best hospital to be able to get your treatment. So, and today in the, in the digital world, consumers are getting ever smarter about what that means. So I can go online right now and I could, with a couple of clicks, find out what the the death rate is in any given hospital around the country because they have to publish it. And so you have a choice. Do I want to go to a hospital where I have a better chance of a good outcome or a worse chance? So I think it's a little more nuanced than that, you know, that hospital is taking care of, you know, that, that guy got hurt. Well, and one of the other things that's happening, I think, and this is where the future is going, is that, you know, like Emory Healthcare right now is working with the Atlanta Falcons and they're doing some really cool stuff that's going to be coming down the pike uh, with trying to get better at, at sort of um, predicting injuries before they happen, you know, micro tears through better MRI machines, um, stress tests, uh, knowledge and information and, and technology that can predict if players are, you know, are, are overworked or under uh, uh, hydrated. I mean, there's a lot of ways now that I think techno the healthcare providers are going to be now going from just hey, we'll fix you when you're broke so that we can help keep you healthy, you know, and healthier during the season. And that's, I think, is going to be really interesting. And you see things like the new technologies like Whoop and, you know, and others. You see all the MLS players wearing their tracking vests all day long. You know, I work with doctors who are looking at those tracking vests and doing really interesting work on recovery times. Like, okay, well, how long should these guys be practicing and how many days before the game to optimize their recovery performance? And sleep is huge and mental health is huge and hydration is huge. And then even guys like Quest Diagnostics, you know, getting into blood work. I mean, I, I, I was privy to a, a situation where they had done a blood tests for the players and one of the, one of the players had realized that they were uh, allergic to egg whites and never knew it and ate like six eggs whites a day <laughs> and boom they found that out that they were he took egg whites out of his diet and that's like a game changer 
in terms of health, wellness, recovery, and all the rest. So I think it's going to go, look, here's an interesting thing that we also learned in that market cast survey, right? If you ask the fans to name the top 20 sponsors of any team, no one will ever mention a healthcare provider. <laughs> it's like less than 1%. But if you ask the fans, hey, which of these three hospitals, the official medical services provider of that team, I mean, I've seen it as high as 65% of fans can accurately identify the hospital or hospitals that are taking care of the teams. So what that says to me is that the fans don't see it as a, a sponsorship category like beer and soda and automotive. They, they see it as an endemic. It's more like Nike or Wilson or Gatorade or like even now like Microsoft tablets that are you know, now being positioned as like part of the game as opposed to just a sponsor, right? That's, and that's what we're trying to do now. We're trying to help all of our hospitals and, and our groups think more intuitively about that connection in sort of player health, but also in community health, which is what I'm sure we're gonna talk about next. So Jeff, you guys at Bendigo are focused primarily on activations of these deals? No, we, we come in at the beginning usually and do strategy. And then strategy then leads to the negotiation, uh, also the research. So for example, you know, with MarketCast, we you know, think through what are the fan profiles and what are the teams that deliver because MLB and MLS deliver a much different audience in a lot of ways. And each of them have a very different um, you know, kind of uh, stickiness too. Like you know, Sounders fans in Seattle are like 70 something percent you know, self proclaim that they will consciously support the sponsor of their teams. Whereas, you know, the Mariners, you know, Major League Baseball in general, they're more like in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, depending on the team. But, you know, the Mariners have a massive amount more fans, and they also have older fans that are in that audience for cardiac, orthopedics, and oncology. So you have to sort of balance and think ahead of time, who do we want to reach? What do we want to talk about with them? And then when you negotiate the agreements with the teams, then you can actually buy the assets with the teams that are most sort of, you know, synergistic with the, the strategy, as opposed to the team just saying, hey, you're going to get these, you know, rotational signs and this game day ad and like these, you know, ad banners on our website, you know, it becomes a much more strategic discussion. And I think that's a good thing. Can you give an example of a, a creative initiative that you guys have done in, in recent years that has really paid off for, the, for, for both parties? Sure, I, I think one of my favorites is, uh, is you know, back uh, about you know, seven, eight years ago, uh, and I think to Joe's point, yeah, 10 years ago is when we got into this whole thing, but about seven, eight years ago uh, with the Giants, uh, they, uh, they had rights at Hackensack for, uh, for fundraising. And in a traditional fundraising way, they were always looking to go after sort of high net worth individuals. So there was a really cool program where you donate 25 grand and you can go on the team plane to the 49ers game on the West Coast, right? Kind of experiential, high-end experiences. But it was interesting because, um, you know, just, and, and just a couple, like a couple weeks ago, uh, we lost and the gentleman's name is, uh, is escaping me, who was the, um, the founder of the Ice Bucket Challenge. He just passed away. Um, oh, Steve. Um, Steve, somebody. I'm sorry, yeah. I forgot. Yeah. yeah, and I know. I feel bad not remembering his name as well. Um, but, you know, that ice bucket challenge sort of changed things in a big way because you, 
all of a sudden you saw this opportunity in fundraising to instead of going after 10 guys with a million dollars, how do you go after a million guys with $10? And all of a sudden you had all these digital fundraising tools that were available that made it really easy to crowdfund and sort of market yourself. I mean, how many friends do you have that are sleeping out, you know, for uh, Covenant House and asking for 25 bucks or 50 bucks or 100 bucks or they're running the New York City Marathon for, you know, for ALS or whatever? You know, social media and the ability to, to I must, I feel like I make, you know, a, a, a donation like once every week <laughs> to someone who's running a race or sleeping out or doing something. And, and that's really where it's gone in a lot of ways. So we took that idea and we applied it uh, to the Giants partnership with Hackensack. And at the same time, Eli Manning was sort of uh, coming towards the end of his career and was looking for, I think, something to give him some more purpose. And I know we wanted to talk today about purpose-driven marketing. So we were very excited to say, hey, could we transform sort of the way that uh, the sports teams and, uh, and, and celebrities and hospitals could crowdfund uh, and so that's what we did. We created this idea called Tackle Kids Cancer. And Eli Manning, I remember sitting across from him in the meeting and laying out this whole plan for him. And, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. He's looking at me with these, like, you know, these, like, you know, like giving me that Eli look, right? They, they say, right? And I'm like, oh my God, he hates this. He hates it. He's going to say no, all the rest. And I get to the end, I was like, so Eli, that's kind of the concept. We want to have you be the Pied Piper and we'd like you to volunteer your time. You know, he, we, we weren't going to pay him. Uh, we just thought it would be a great way for him to sort of engage the community. And he looks at me at the end. He's like, yeah, you have me at hello. It's all set. I'm, I'm in. <laughs> right. So then Eli proceeds to over like you know, the last five years to put in an amazing amount of elbow grease and work and time into building this charity and beyond just you know, the photo shoots and the video commercials and the, you know, all the rest and the appearances, you know, spending time with the families and with the kids and with the parents and making phone calls and writing letters to families who lost their kids. And I, I, I can't say enough about what Eli has done. And it really resonated in this market. And I'm really proud to say that this, it was the five-year anniversary in September of the launch. And we've raised $10 million over the last five years. And Eli has put hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars into his, of his own money into this to be able to match fundraising of local grassroots communities who are doing car washes and bake sales and all the rest. It's just been fantastic. So to me, I think when you talk about, you know, being a purpose-driven organization, having a purpose-driven, I tell you, I woke up every morning so excited to go to work on that Tackle Kids Cancer Program that it really hurt my business because I was so hyper-focused on getting that thing done. You know, we didn't make a lot of money that year comparatively to what we were doing if we were working on other stuff, but I didn't, I didn't care. It's like, it felt right and it felt good. And I felt that if we could do it, it's another sort of legacy you could leave behind in a good way. And so, you know, to me, it was really inspirational to see how, what people could do if they all kind of joined together. Jeff, since the virus hit last, uh, earlier this year, back in March when everything had its uh, lock shut down or locked down. Um, how did that influence your discussions? I mean, is this, it, it, it seems to me, this must be raising the importance of these kinds of initiatives and executions to a, a level you might not have imagined a year ago from now. Yeah, it's a good question. So we've been out evangelizing for the last five years that 
hospitals, as I said about the market cast research, right? They're not sponsors. Don't treat us like sponsors. Don't look at us like sponsors. We're your partners in health in the community. So let's take the Crucial Catch program and instead of it being, hey, go to an app and find out about your, with the American you know, Cancer Association and find out about your, uh, you know, your risks, how about like, you know, with one click, you could get to an appointment with the seven different cancers that are being addressed in that program with your healthcare provider. And I try, to, try to inspire these teams and their community services groups, right? Their CR groups on top of their sponsorship groups to kind of take that signage and sponsorship off and how do you make the hospitals and their millions of patients and their reach, how do you make them an extension of the team's goodwill and community service efforts? And I think that the Crucial Catch program has been a great example. So in Seattle, you know, and in Atlanta uh, and in New York, you know, over the last 10 years, we've had great success leveraging Crucial Catch and turning it into a local on the ground promotion where it's living at the hospitals. We got players visiting the hospitals. We've got uh, patients visiting the, uh, the team facilities, you know, non-COVID. And so that whole idea around evangelizing, changing the perception of your healthcare provider, and that, by the way, extended to uh, Major League Baseball's prostate cancer program and for Father's Day, MLB's uh, 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 the NBA Fit program, the uh, MLB Mother's Day a pink celebration, pink bat celebration. How do we leverage every one of those through the healthcare systems? And what I think is, I saw happen is that the team started to say, ah, these guys really aren't a sponsor. They really are really a partner. And when COVID hit, the whole thing flipped like crazy, right? Because suddenly the hospitals who were used to being a sponsor of the heroes on the field, all of a sudden the heroes on the field were like a sponsor of the heroes on the front lines. And the teams were like, oh my God, how do we help our hospital partners through this? Because the teams didn't have anything to do. They needed to generate their own uh, you know, efforts to, to help the community. So why not turn to their hospitals? And then the hospitals couldn't really market themselves, right? What hospital was running an ad for, you know, for, I don't know, flu shots or whatever in the middle of a pandemic that people couldn't go to the hospitals. So suddenly the sports teams became the marketing engines for these healthcare systems because they were doing PPE drives and they were opening their, their, uh, their parking lots to do COVID testing. And, the, and Eli Manning was sending you know, meals and cookies to the, the frontline workers at Hackensack. And Matt Ryan was doing video conferences with all the nurses in, in Atlanta. And the, the, uh, the Atlanta Hawks were spending huge amounts of money to buy tens of thousands of meals from their food vendors who are embedded in their stadium at Mercedes-Benz and feeding the healthcare workers at Emory tens of thousands of meals. So all of a sudden, like it flipped, who's the hero and who's the, you know, who's not. And I, I got to tell you, it was, it's really been inspiring. Uh, we've been working, I feel like 80 hours a week since COVID started to try to keep these connections going and helping the teams to help the hospitals and helping the hospitals to help the teams. And I think that coming out of COVID, it's gonna be, um, be even better because I think those relationships have been cemented and solidified in a, in a whole different way. So, so what does that look like in a year from now, Jeff? You, talk, you touched on a couple of other areas which I think are important. One is mental health, which was going to be a big deal in 2021 with athletes of all levels. And it's kind of 
slid off. Um, but but and then you factor in, you know, all the social responsibility things that that is have now gone. If they were seventh or eighth on a list for a team, they're now first or second, and that's not going to change. So, so in a perfect world, well, we're not going to be in a perfect world. But if you look forward, what's the combination? that would make sense for both, since you've seen this from both sides now, a year, as we're sitting here a year from now? Uh, I'll hit the, um, the mental health thing first. Uh, I think that's a frontier that's yet to be fully integrated, but it's getting there. I think, you know, take a look at the Hayden Hurst uh, bio that the Falcons just put out last week. Incredibly heart rendering, a heart, what's the word? I, I teared up, you know, feeling it for this guy. And it really opened my eyes a lot about sort of the struggles of, uh, you know, of, of mental illness. So I think that, that that's on our list of things that we've got to be able to get to, especially coming out of the, pa the, the, the pandemic. But I think from a, a bigger and broader perspective, you know, it's only part of a, of a bigger picture. So, you know, here's the interesting thing, right? So we talked about Mayor Bloomberg being so focused on, you know, sugar and trans fat and, uh, and healthy lifestyles. So, at the end of the day, what was he trying to do? He was trying to, what they call, bend the curve on what they call population health to try to allow people to live healthier lives. And what happened during the pandemic? It was people who were most at risk outside of age factors. It was the things that sugar and trans fat and those, you know, those unhealthy lifestyles and choices only amplified the, you know, the, the downside risk of COVID, right? So asthma for being in a, you know, having an unhealthy air, obesity, diabetes, coronary heart disease, these are the things that made COVID even worse. And so, you know, we believe that we could have a great opportunity this next year to have the sports teams continue to inspire their fans to live a healthier lifestyle and to, because if they live a healthier lifestyle, they're going to be able to be healthier to be able to fight things like COVID in, down the road and all the health disparities that are out there. This is like an important part of that whole thing. So I think that we have to work with our sports teams to work on healthy living, healthy lifestyles and all the rest. And we're doing it already. Dan Wilson and Dave Sims, uh, you know, two great guys at the Mariners, just hosted a, a prostate cancer uh, webinar uh, on behalf of the Mariners with one of our doctors at CHI Franciscan. And they're like, hey guys, you know, just because you don't feel like comfortable going to the doctor right now doesn't mean that you can put off your, you know, your annual checkups. And Dave Sims is a great spokesman because he, uh, if, if you know, he was feeling great, had no problems, but got his annual physical. And it turned out that he had prostate cancer, ended up having it, you know, it was aggressive and he had it taken care of, but he's become an incredible advocate now for regular screenings because one of the things coming out of this pandemic is going to be the stage one and stage two cancers are not being detected, right? Because people are afraid to go to the hospital. Um, people aren't getting the exercise and, you know, they're not out living the healthier lifestyles that they might have lived because of the pandemic. Um, there's so many things that this pandemic, mental health issues, making it worse, drinking, uh, right? Alcohol abuse, all these things are, are amplified because of this. So I think we have an opportunity to be, you know, to really have a purpose by helping the sports teams to inspire their millions of fans to be able to change the behaviors and the, the, the values and the goals of everyday fans to try to take better care of themselves. Because if they can take better care of themselves, they're taking better care of their community, right? If I'm not 
sick in the hospital, I'm opening up a bed or care to somebody who maybe needs it more than I do. So it's very much a, a giving to live a healthy life. You're actually giving back to your community and reducing the overall cost of healthcare, which now is coming up on probably 20% of the gross national product. It's insane. How do we, how do we bend that curve? How do we, how do we reduce those costs? Jeff, it, it sounds like this is a category you, uh, you obviously know a ton about. You're working in it. Would love to get some of your thoughts on, on where um, healthcare is going vis-a-vis -vis technology. You mentioned some of the wearable technology like Whoop and, and the things that the teams are doing with their athletes, but it, it now seems to be more commonplace. You know, Amazon has, has entered the game, Google uh, with Fitbit, Apple with their uh, eyes on the, the health market with the Apple Watch and what they're doing as they evolve that. Um, talk about what you see coming up in terms of telemedicine, as they call it, or kind of redefining how care is actually given, because it feels like we're on the precipice of real change there. Yeah, the precipice went off the cliff about three months ago. So some of our hospital systems went from low numbers of hundreds of telehealth uh, appointments, just on your, you're on your phone talking to your doctor through their app, to tens of thousands. Because, And the doctors never wanted to do this because they felt that it was more important they can touch and feel. It's, you know, they've been trained their whole lives to put their hands on patients and feel them and look in their eyes and look in their ears. And, you know, and also, you know, it's a financial thing too. Medical reimbursements are not as usually as high for telehealth as it is for anyone else. And plus, who else wants to disintermediate the value of that lifetime patient connection, where if I've got a patient who's been coming to me for 20 years, why do I want to let them get on the phone with somebody who might be in North Dakota or in India? to have their, you know, have their medical appointment. And now you look at the big brands out there, you've got the, the Mayo Clinics and the NYU Langones and these guys, they're all in now strong on telehealth and it's gonna help break down barriers to get the best care. Because if you think about it, you know, if I can do this from my phone, why do I wanna go to my local hospital if I can go to the best hospital in the world? Mm -hmm. So it's gonna be a wild ride this next five years as telehealth starts to pick off patients and pick off sort of the, the entrenched system. But also, you know, I don't get my flu shots at the doctor. You know, I get them at the Walgreens, right? <laughs> people are going, to, people are going to, to Walmart for healthcare now, to the urgent care clinic. Uh, right. You know, it, like the whole thing is, and the hospitals are this sort of, you know, battleship, right? Heading down that it's built these huge battleships, real estate, facilities, research platforms, you know, tens of thousands of employees, the whole thing. It's hard to turn a battleship. And the, but the hard part is, remember we talked earlier on about the commercially insured patients, right? The hospitals are gonna need to continue to fight for the best patients because Amazon, Walmart, uh, you know, Google, they're gonna pick off the best patients and take, and they could take it right out of the system and the hospitals are going to end up being like a, you know, like a utility in a way. And that's not a good system because you've got to reinvest into healthcare. It's very expensive to have the latest MRI machines. And a good MRI machine versus an old MRI machine can be the difference between spotting cancer and not spotting cancer and stage one and stage two. I mean, it's, it's like a life and death struggle in a lot of ways. So you hope that everybody can play nice in the sandbox over these next 10 years as this whole industry kind of goes through its next level of, up, of upheaval as it has since 
the Affordable Care Act was, you know, launched, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Jeff, you think about this incursion by big tech into healthcare, which is growing, and, and many pundits think it's going to grow quite rapidly these next few years because of this inflection point we seem to have reached. It, it doesn't seem like a fair fight in terms of the techno on the technology side, in terms of the actual digital experiences and things like that. What are the, if we, if we use the uh, attackers versus incumbent theme that we all mm -hmm. talk about uh, in the digital business, you've got the incumbents, these established large and essentially very bureaucratic healthcare systems being attacked not only by big tech, like the big players with just a vast amount of money and resources, but even a t small attacker brands that are rapidly growing, such as One Medical, just redefining medical experiences. Are, do they have the will, these incumbents, to actually fight a good fight here these next few years? I think they're going to be up for the challenge of their careers, right? So One Medical is a great example, right? If I recall, uh, I pay like uh, 500 bucks a year or 100 bucks a year or whatever, and I get my own digital doctor at my disposal that I can text, I can video chat with whenever I want, however I want, when I need it. And that's almost like the first mile, right? So this is like a first mile and last mile battle, right? Amazon figured out the last model, mile, right? Google figured out the first mile and everyone else is stuck in the middle, right? So now, you know, one medical, they're the first mile, right? Because essentially they can be everywhere and nowhere and be taking care of your health. But then they have to refer you if you're in Arkansas to somebody who can actually see you if you have a condition. So it's gonna be a battle, I think, for the, the entry points into these places, then the, once you get to the entry point, the stickiness of staying in the system, that's why these hot, that's why Hackensack University Medical Center is now Hackensack Meridian Health with one, from one big hospital up on the hill to now 17 hospitals, all bringing people in through urgent care and primary care, and then moving them up the ladder into the more serious issues and sort of keeping them in what they call that continuum of care. Like so, a vertical, like a vertical integration in a way, I guess, right? It's all vertical integration. And that's where, again, the really good companies like, and I'm not sure if One Medical is a great company or not. They certainly have a great model, you know, on it, you know, just looking at it on their website. But, um, you know, they've done a great job of picking off a chunk of the first mile. Um, but at the end of the day, who's going to be able to, who's going to get to that last mile and who's going to be able to keep those patients happy because, one of the things I've you know, been seeing in some of the research is that with healthcare, and this is important for sports marketers to understand, is that it, uh, and I'm paraphrasing this from a, a, one of the people I work with, so don't take me to, you know, to task if I'm off by a number, but he said that like some 75% of patients will abandon their physician if their uh, deductible or their, you know, their upfront copayment goes from $20 to $50 because of, the, of a change in the insurance policy if you're tier one or tier two or gold or bronze. So he's like, how do I, how do I live in a life where for 30 bucks, someone's gonna throw out their lifetime doctor? There's no loyalty in this business. That's why right. sports is so important to him because he sees that transfer of trust and that institutional patina that the sports teams mm -hmm. put on their institutions and will get people in hopefully to trust consider, utilize, and advocate for their, right, those funnel metrics we always talk about in research, right? Um, I'm aware of it. I am familiar with it, right? I know what it means and why it's good. Uh, I then, I 
trust it, right? I consider it, I trust it and consider it, then I use it, and then I liked it, and then I'll advocate for it with my friends. That's sort of your like pyramid of trust. Sports is really working hard, at least with us, to try to get you from awareness, which is what it used to be. I slap logos on the, you know, on the, the LED signs, right? My brand name is out there. To go from the brand name to I trust, consider, utilize, and advocate for, that's, that's what these hospitals have to fight the Amazons, the, the One Medicals, and all the rest. People have to trust the system that they're in their best interest to be there. So first of all, institutional patina, Tom, we have to write that down because we haven't used that in I like that. five years, which is great. Thank you, Jeff, for bringing that Is that down. a real thing? I, I, I actually I know, you, saying it. I'm like, oh my God, what am I saying? Is that? I don't know. It sounds beautiful though. Um, it's, my new, it's my new band. So, yeah. But you at least the name of the record for your first album name. Right, okay. Um, last question from me before we kind of wrap it up and get to the last piece. So I am the healthcare system that is invested dollars and effort into this partnership with the team. And my deal is becoming due at the end. Let's say it's a five-year deal. Is it, which side blinks first on whether, you know, all this goodwill and effort, especially now with COVID and everything that we're going through says, that's great, but we need this amount of money to continue our goodwill. Otherwise we're gonna go to your competitor. So how do you balance that out? if you're on the healthcare side versus uh, what's the ROI? And then if you're on the team side, how do you just suddenly, which happens, drop everybody to go from, you know, better example, hospital for special surgery to NYU Langone? Look, Joe, that's the ultimate question, right? It's an art and a science, right? The science says there's like musical chairs, right? There's four major hospital systems and there's six major teams and who's gonna end up having enough money to get it done, New York City, I would guess if I had to put a, you know, a number on it, there's $30 million being spent by healthcare systems in New York City metropolitan area on rights fees to the you know, dozen or so teams that are there, right? So it's a musical chairs. There's a financial benefit. At the same time, teams want the best. And sometimes teams will pick, uh, will take less money to be with a better system because they feel it is better for their brand and better for their program. If you're lucky enough to be in New York City, there's like not a lot of bad ones, right? They're all good. So, you know, money does talk and that'll be difficult. Here, the follow-up to that before we kind of get to the last two questions, who's making that call at the teams? Is it a combination of trainers, in-house medical and the marketing side? Or is the marketing dictating it and saying, we have to switch you guys. I know you guys love these doctors, but we need to switch because we're getting more money. Uh, nothing's ever going to be done without the team physician signing off on it. Um, but re remember the hospital is the place again, where, you know, you'll, you'll do your, it, it's, they're not the doctors always just taking care of the teams there. Right. Cause here's the other thing. The players have the ability to go to any doctor they want, right? Saquon Barkley, you know, flew out to LA after the, um, you know, after the, the world series is over and got in line to wait to see the doctor that he wanted to see. Uh, and not, he didn't go to hospital for special surgery. Other people from the West Coast will come into the hospital for special surgery. Players can go wherever they want to get their care. The athletic trainer's there to be able to do the, 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 the triaging at the local level, to look at team health in general, to make sure the team is performing as healthy as possible, have all the tools and the best stuff available to them. And then 
you know, it's the pre-certifications, it's the labs, the blood work and all the rest of it, the MRIs, the sort of team checks, the clearances that are really being done. So any good, great quality hospital is usually going to be fined by the athletic trainer. And so then it, it does become a financial decision in a lot of ways for the teams. But, and often I got to tell you, the owner of the team will make the decision because here's the other thing. Hospitals are nonprofits. Teams are in the community service business. I will tell you that the owners of these teams are involved in deciding because they sit on the same boards. They know, that, right? They've given millions of dollars of their own money to these charitable, you know, non-for-profits. So it's a very integrated and sort of holistic decision that's being made across all the things for the teams. Because an owner may have a, a very powerful experience that their family's been treated at this hospital for 20 years sometimes, right? But <laughs> I've seen teams flip too. Very, you know, it's uh, crazy. Cool. That's why we're. That's why we got into this world because we we want to advocate for the health systems because we think that they need the best guidance that they can get to make these decisions and to, you know, sort of compete for the the, the best situations that they can get and to help them achieve their business goals. All right, I'm going to end with the and and the before we wrap with our final two standard questions, just with the rhetorical question. No need to answer this, but listening to you talk the last few minutes, Jeff, I'm thinking. I hadn't really thought about this before. When, assuming that your premise is correct, and I believe it is, that it's gonna be a branding battle and a trust battle and an affinity battle to keep customers, patients, um, and that sports is a good way to drive that as you've now proven with many of your deals. When Joe and I have often talked in this podcast and in, in our program, about when, quote, big tech will get into the sports business in earnest in the media side. When will they buy Monday Night Football or big rights package? I'm sitting here wondering now, I wonder when they will make their move in this part of the business, because that's something I hadn't thought much about until this conversation, that if you look at their, their designs on healthcare and, and building patients and lifetime value and their ability to featureize something like medical care with everything else they do, which is kind of their game, and the amount of money they have, it feels like they could come in and steal a lot of this business if they wanted, just as YouTube TV has gone in and sponsored, not MLB, but the World Series, or a YouTube TV for LAFC or, or whatever. So anyway, that will be an interesting thing to watch. They're already there. They're already have built their plans and Again, though, remember, you can only pick off so many things because healthcare is not a very profitable business. I know, I know, I know, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> Jeff. Your average healthcare system is not making money in this country right now. And the good ones are maybe making, you know, 3% you know, profit at the end of the day. And that's what I'm saying. Well, what we, I guess, again, what we, we need to wrap up. But my point is simply that if a company like Amazon could go to sports teams or leagues, it's, it's going to probably be team deals, I guess, original, initially, um, and come in and do a, a variation of this kind of thing in a more targeted way. It'll be interesting to watch because God knows they have the money and they have the ambition. Um, Jeff, we like to ask everybody two questions as we wrap up our shows. I'll ask the first one, Joe can ask the second. The first is, and I'm particularly um, curious about your answer to this question. You need to keep up on a lot of things to do your job. You're now studying the healthcare business, obviously. You're studying the sports business. You're studying marketing. 
how do you stay smart? What are you reading? What are you listening to? Who do you follow? Like what, what keeps you smart as you try to keep up with your work? We kind of have to split our brains in two. So modern healthcare, forum for healthcare strategists, uh, healthcare marketing strategy. We are at the trade shows with the healthcare marketing professionals. We're speaking, we're listening. We're, you know, when the trade shows are actually happening live, you know, we are really engaged with the healthcare market and the chief marketing officers and the chief strategy officers and the CEOs in that world. Cause that's where we need to understand where everything's happening. And, you know, their world, it's very much about, you know, CRM and digital marketing and, you know, the, spending the least amount of money to get the most stickiness and be able to track patients down through that continuum of care. So we're living in the healthcare publication space all the time, and we're trying to be uh, engaged and we're doing podcasts and we're with healthcare professionals, you know, networks we're doing, uh, and we're doing speaking engagements and we're bringing our clients to the table with sports teams and the clients to talk. So I'd say we spend 80% of our time in the healthcare world. And then for us, it's SBJ and Sportico and, you know, the, you guys, I mean, you know, this, it's how we stay together. And plus, you know, all my personal friends are still in the sports business. So, you know, like just catching up. I mean, I learned more, you know, I had a great chance to catch up with, with Joe and you just in the last couple of weeks, which kind of prompted this. And I learned more in, in those conversations than I, I learned, you know, reading things. So you got to be talking to people who are on the kind of bleeding edge of things, no pun intended on the healthcare side. But you got to stay where the smart uh, people are going, you know? And then, uh, Jeff, the last question is, we obviously have a lot of people transitioning in careers, starting in careers, looking for careers. Uh, And you've worked in a lot of very big places and some small ones who have been nimble. What's the advice you give to people who are transitioning career or beginning a career? Uh, Beginning a career, I'd say do your best to kind of latch on with a big brand uh, that has a lot of, that you can learn a lot and multi-disciplines early on. Mm -hmm. I think it, like I was very lucky to get into the NFL early on and again, sat in that, you know, it was, it was Tom and it was Don Garber and it was Rick Dudley and it was Jim Schwabel and it was, you know, on and on and on, you know, you you can't learn that, uh, you know, sitting at your house on a computer, you know, trying to do, you know, small stuff. You got to be in the mix with, with big brands and big people if you can. Uh, so I think early in my career, I would always recommend going, you know, taking the, even if you got to work almost as an intern, get into a big place with a, with a lot that you can learn fast and write off your, your income for the first five years to just learn. And then you can kind of pick the spots that you want to get to down the road. And then I think the second thing is if you're already in the business and you're trying to make a transition, Look, we are a purpose-driven company. You know, Mark Benioff, uh, the guy at Salesforce, wrote a book recently I got to read, and he talked about how they really, they felt that if you have, if you have values, you can have a value proposition. And so I believe that if, like I told you before, when I was working on that Tackle Kids Cancer Program in that one year when we started it up, I mean, I, I was up at, you know, early, and I went to bed late, and I was at events on the weekends, and I was doing, you got to do something that you love and you care about. Because if you don't, you're just flogging a, a product. And so I would say try to do something that can give you a purpose where you can give back and where you, you know, what you're doing does make the world somewhat of a better place to live. And even if you are in a big place, you know, try to take something on within that company that gives you a purpose. I mean, we, we put up our hands to become a sustainability group for one of our healthcare partners because they had no one doing sustainability. And it came because we did a huge deal with Coca-Cola 
And once we did the Coca-Cola agreement with for the healthcare system, we realized that they had no recycling program and there was like a million bottles and cans going into the landfill. We're like, we can't, we can't live like that. We have to, we had to do something about that. And so, you know, again, that's what makes you work like crazy people like us, you know, 10 o'clock at night and on the weekends. And what makes you go to Columbia to take continuing education and to learn and to, you know, to sharpen your sword and make yourself better. If you care about what you're doing and you love what you're doing, you'll never work a day in your life. Well said. Yeah. Well said. Well, thank you. Right? Yeah. Good stuff, Jeff. Um, that was terrific, Joe. Really enjoyed that conversation, Jeff. And I'm, I'm glad we got to cover this extremely important and very interesting topic. 2021 sounds like it's going to be a wild year, Jeff, in this in your world. So I wish you well, you and Bendigo well. It sounds like you're well on your way to being a dominant agency in this space. Small, um, but we care. <laughs> well, yeah. Are you? By the way, you, I assume you'll be. You're planning on growing the business in 2021. Yeah, but I think also, you know, we're lucky being small that we could work with who we want to work with and how. Right. So I think small, nimble, and creative is is better. You know, we 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 back. You know, 15 years ago, I you know when I was in China, I was like, I'm never going to have an office. I'm always going to have my office be where my clients are and my laptop is and where, you know, and we were doing Skype back then. We were living on Skype in 2007, you know, 2006. Who knew that I'd be back to that, but <laughs> stay small, stay nimble. You know, I feel bad that I don't have an office for my people that has a ping pong table and a beard cap tap and all that and nice brick walls and high ceilings. But, you know, the people who work for us, they, they've got lives and you know, one's breeding dogs on the side, one's like skiing on the side and they work crazy hours, but they've got the time to do what they want to do as well and kind of follow their bliss like my old buddy Joseph Campbell always does, right? And if they're happy, I'm happy and they're happy and they're fulfilled and, you know, you have this kind of balance of work, life and purpose. So it's all good. Wow. Yeah. Words of wisdom from Jeff Safka. Very, uh, very Zen coming from Ridgewood, New Jersey, by the way. Right now. <laughs> zen for, Jer Jeff, for a Jersey way. guy. Joe, uh, you said you had a trivia question. Do you want to ask it before we wrap? Because we do need no, to wrap in a second. I think um, I think the best thing to do is for the obviously you guys are listening to this. You're not watching it, but um, Tom and and Jeff both have very deep interests and, and followings in music. So um, if you were going to lean forward um, for both of you, what is your prediction for the music business in the next year in terms of engagement for for consumers? Ooh. Where is it going to go from both of you? I don't know. I pray live music comes back in a big way. It's going to be, it's going to take some time, but you know. Yeah, I agree, Joe. I think there's going to be experience. such a pent, pent up demand for live shows. I mean, those of us that like live music, particularly in smaller venues, I, I think we've learned in our lives. It's, it's about as special a human experience as you can have, in my humble opinion. And I miss it terribly. There's a wonderful venue in Fairfield, Connecticut called Fairfield Theater Company, where I've seen amazing, amazing acts through the years. Uh, it's a 175 person black box theater. I feel really bad for them. They've been doing some creative things to raise money, but I just hope they survive along with the thousands of their other venues like that because they're just incredibly important facilities and cultural institutions in our society. And I believe the fan demand will be so pent up. I could see, again, it's not as, as those are going to be a magic day where everybody, everything can get back to normal and you're going to go to a, a crowded uh, a music venue. But we will get there 
I just hope the good places can survive and that the, um, you know, the, those of us that are, are clamoring to get back can just be patient. It's hard to be patient. So I do appreciate Jeff. I'm sure Jeff has seen a lot of this stuff. There's been a lot of really creative stuff done digitally. Um, I am an enormous fan of tiny desk concerts. I always have been. But the, that, that content is some of the best music contact content ever created, in my opinion. So it's a good proxy. Uh, to no make money it back normal. The money uh, is in. Uh, I understand. I understand that. But the money's least, in live performance and events. Right. right? Because yeah. Spotify and all the ones that came before it pretty much, you know, uh, decommissioned the album business and making money. Right. When Yes in mm -hmm. 1972 was going crazy, they made all their money on records and they toured to be able to sell the records. Now you make a record to be able to tour because you make all your money touring. Right, right. So hopefully okay. we'll get touring, back. Touring, 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 live, 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 live. There we yeah. go. So anyway, hopefully we'll be back there at some point in 2021, Joe. Anyway, we got to go, guys. Um, Jeff Safka, the principal and founder of Bendigo, former executive with the city of New York, with the National Football League, Lord and Taylor, not a and s my, with my embarrassing opening um Jim, it's not macy's you're so. you're a, a font of knowledge on a, a really important topic so we wish you well in 2021 as you grow bendigo and help all these healthcare systems and teams figure out how to navigate these very interesting waters of uh, sponsorship in the healthcare world so uh, thank you for sharing your insights with us really appreciate it Thanks. I wish you and your audience uh, the healthiest next six months as we work our way out of this pandemic. Thank cool. you. And thanks to our producers, uh, Taylor and Ben. Greatly appreciate it, Joe. Another good and interesting show. Thank you. More to come. More to come. More to come. Yep. So everybody, you've been listening to the Cusp Show from Columbia. And uh, we want to extend one last thanks to Jeff Safka. By the way, Jeff, I forgot to ask, how can people find you in Bendigo? Bendigoco.com. Bendigoco.com. And are you on any social stuff you'd want to mention? Yeah, you know, again, our stuff is really on behalf of our clients. So we, you know, LinkedIn's fine. You know, okay. Jeff's off the LinkedIn cool. is good. Bendigo LinkedIn's cool as well. All right, everybody check out Bendigoco.com and you can learn a lot more about what Jeff and his um, colleagues are doing in with their business. It's really quite interesting. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.